Welcome back, and thanks for joining us today. We have continued our adventure on shapes for the past few lectures. Let's see what we had thought about. Do you remember how we struggled with thinking about the different branches of mathematics? Analysis, which has to do with how things change. Algebra, which has to do with the structure of mathematics. And geometry, which has to do with shapes. Now, we got a glimpse of how these worlds worked, kind of in a big picture setting. And as we progress through these lectures, we'll dive into each one of them, again, from the perspective of wanting to study shapes more. We also understood that there's this relatively new branch of mathematics that started around the 18 to 1900s. This was called topology. The focus of topology was still studying shapes, but it was not about area and volume and distance, but it focused on relative position. So thus, our concept of what it meant to be equivalent from a topological perspective is different than what it means to be equivalent from a geometric perspective. And this new idea of equivalence is useful when we talk about things at different levels of the world. At the micro level, when we look at DNA structures, or even structures of atoms, even smaller to super string theoretic ideas, which we'll discuss later, or to the macro worlds, when we talk about black holes and galaxies. Both of these extreme cases are well designed for us to use our new tool of topology to understand it. And we also talked about equivalence of shapes in topology, and we call this isotopy, or rubber sheet geometry. Do you remember how we took the letters of the alphabet and we can stretch it and pull it and change it and have a new concept of equivalence based on topology? We closed our ideas with the study of dimension. We talked about dimension as a number that you associate to a shape to measure how much amount of information you need to tell somebody where you live on that shape. Well, today we begin our jump into shapes by considering the simplest and the most elegant of these shapes, one-dimensional ideas of circles. So remember last time, all those circles are one dimensions. It might take two dimensions for you to draw. It even might exist in space in a three-dimensional perspective. So what is a circle for a topologist? Well, it's simply a piece of string that you connect the ends up together. This is all circles are. And our goal is to study how these circles sit in three-dimensional space. Now remember, whether I take the circle and I put it on the plane, which is two-dimensional, or I take the circle and I hold it in my hand and move it around in three dimensions, where it does have x, y, z coordinates to draw it, notice the circle is still a one-dimensional object. Because if you lived on the circle, there's only a one-dimensional world of possibilities of where you could be. Anywhere you are, you could tell your friend where you live with that one-dimensional piece of data. Walk 13 feet to the left to find me, or walk four feet to the right to find me, one piece of information is enough, even if you're in three dimensions. Well, what are the properties that we can do with circles in three dimensions? The most beautiful examples of circles in three dimensions are what we call knots. And knots are simply defined to be circles that are placed in three dimensions in different ways. And the most 
elegant way of constructing knots are by taking strings and just closing up the ends of the string. So consider some examples. Here is a piece of string, and as I close it up, it forms a circle. This is the simplest form of knot possible. And since it's instinctively not even knotted up at all, we call this the unknot. What else can we do? We can take the piece of string, tie a shoestring knot, what you'd use to tie your shoelaces with. Probably the simplest knot that you can see like this. Now close the ends of the string together. Now this thing is again a circle that we have because it starts and ends at the same place. But however, it's been placed into space in a different way than the unknot has. This piece of knot is called the trefoil. Let's take a look why. If I place this on this flat plane, we see that there are exactly three bumps that are based on this knot. And since there are these three bumps, we get the word tre in trefoil of three. Now notice what we can do. This is a trefoil that I've just placed on this table. Now consider this particular crossing right here. Notice that this crossing is going on top of this other one. But if I cut this open, now re-glue again, now this crossing is going below. The strand is going under this one. By making that small change, I've actually changed my knot itself. And what do I have now? Well, now I have just the unknot. So that one crossing change has changed my trefoil into my unknot. But remember in topology, I'm not allowed to cut and re-glue because that has fundamentally changed the property of relative position. So let me ask you a very simple question. If somebody gives you the circle, which we're going to call the unknot in this particular projection, and somebody takes the circle, cuts it, ties it, makes a trefoil out of it, and gives this to you, are these both the same from the idea of a topologist. In other words, by isotopy, by just stretching and pulling without cutting, can I make this trefoil knot into an unknot? Well, let's try it. Here I am. I pull it. I twist it around. And I stretch it. And notice that no matter what happens, it doesn't seem like I can make the trefoil into the unknot. Our gut instinct says we have two very different objects topologically. No matter how much I stretch or pull, I can't make one into the other one. But a gut instinct is not a proof. It's just intuition. More generally, we ask this question. Are there knots? Are there knots at all? Is every piece of knot that we can come up with just the unknot in disguise? Is there a beautiful trick that takes this into the unknotted circle that we don't know yet. Maybe there's a special move that we have yet to learn that would make the trefoil that is actually knotted up that we constructed by gluing the ends together into the unknot. Well, this is our goal for today, to prove that the trefoil is actually different than the unknot, that knots actually do exist. And if we have this much of a hard time figuring out whether the trefoil and the unknot are the same or not, and if only have instinct going for us, well, what about this picture? Here, we see an example of a knot far more complicated than the trefoil or the unknot. 
Can we just look at this picture and understand whether it's the trefoil or the unknot or something far more complicated? What is it about this picture that will give us that information? Notice this picture has everything we need. It has the entire circle. It starts and ends at the same place. It has all the crossing information that you want. So this has the information we need. But is there a way to tell whether this is the unknot or not? Well, before pushing ahead into mathematical language, let's consider how knots appear in nature. Now, we're going to look at some snapshots today, but we're going to go into details of each of these in future lectures. Let me give you three quick ideas. First, knots appear in chemistry. In 1988, the first synthesis of the knotted molecule occurred. What a beautiful thing to think about. A molecule whose pieces are made up of atoms that come together and form a knotted structure. Remember what we talked about in the very first lecture, form and function are related. So the kind of knot that we get based on the molecular structure determines the property of the molecule itself. They also appear in physics, not just in chemistry in terms of knotted molecules, but in physics. A branch of physics called string theory believes that all matter is based on vibrations of circles. So if you want to understand what the property of carbon atom is, it means there's an underlying circle that's vibrating that determines the property of that atom being carbon. If you want to understand what makes an atom oxygen, there's a vibration of a circle that does this. And not only is it the vibration of the circle, but it's the type of knots formed by the circle that determine the properties of this matter. Again, we see in physics, form and function are related, just like we saw in chemistry and the way these molecular knots are being built. Well, third, knots also appear in biology. You know, the DNA double helix is packed into the nucleus as a knotted coil. It's extremely long, this molecular structure made up of thousands and thousands of atoms, but it's packed into your nucleus. Certain enzymes are actually needed to go inside and untangle this knotted structure of the DNA to smooth it out so your body can come in and use other properties to copy the DNA for cell division. Moreover, in biology, there's a type of fish called the hagfish, which ties itself up into a knot when a predator comes and tries to grab it. It then uses its slime that's around it and uses the knot-theoretic properties to push itself away from the prey. So we see, the more we study these shapes, even as simple as knots, the more we push our understanding of nature. Now, the best way to study and work with knots is to not study the three-dimensional objects that are knots, but look at their projections onto paper. We think of projections as their shadow. Imagine you have a knot. Remember, up to topology, I can take this knot and stretch it and pull it and twist it around. As long as I don't cut and re-glue, it's still the same knot. So instead of looking at this three-dimensional object, note this is basically a two-dimensional projection. So if we just look at the flat projection of the knot, we can get the information of the knot we want. However, we need to draw in the crossing information. Just looking at the shadow of the knot itself loses that crossing information. So thus, if I can redraw the crossing information again, 
then I actually have what we call the projection of the knot. It's the shadow of the knot with the crossing information that you need to rebuild this knot. For example, this picture we saw earlier is a knot projection. We see the knot itself flat on a two-dimensional piece of paper along with that crossing information. The tools needed to study projections, which are basically pictures, which are basically shapes, were given by Kurt Reitemeister in the 1920s. Again, this is the start of the topology revolution. Now, Reitemeister developed three moves. We're going to call it Reitemeister moves one, two, and three for simplicity, which changes the knot projection, but not the knot it represents. In other words, these moves go into my knot projection, my knot picture, and they change the picture, but the knot itself is left unchanged. Let me show you the first move to explain what I mean. Consider this picture. What this picture shows is a zoomed in magnified perspective of my small piece of my knot. So my knot is all around this property, unchanged, and I've zoomed in and looked at this one piece of vertical string. Now, what Reitemeister says is his first move enables you to cut out that circle, leave the rest of the knot perfectly fixed to cut out that circle and replace it with another circle with one little extra twist. Notice, as a picture, the knots are completely different in their diagrams, in their projections, because one had this vertical piece in it and the other one has the same vertical piece with a twist. So we see the projections are different, but you can easily tell that the knot that it represents, either this one or this one with the extra twist, hasn't really changed at all. All I'm doing is a very small, simple move in three dimensions, which hasn't changed my knot by cutting or breaking. So there are two other Reitemeister moves that we need to worry about. This first one says we can take this vertical string, twist it one way, or we can twist it the other way and come back to the exact same knot, but have different projections. The other two are as follows. The second Reitemeister move says, if you have two vertical lines, I can take one of these vertical lines and push it behind the other one, introducing two new crossings. Again, the knot projections are very different. They don't look like them at all. The pictures have changed, but the underlying knot has not changed at all. I've just pushed a strand behind another one in three dimensions. And similarly, the second part of the Reitemeister move, two, takes the same two strands and pushes it on top. These moves of pushing it behind or on top is what the second Reitemeister moves are about. Now, the third Reitemeister move is as follows. I can take a crossing and take any strand that's behind the crossing and move it below that crossing. In other words, a crossing does not interfere with my strand that's behind it. Similarly, I can take my crossing, I take a strand in front of my crossing and move it below it. A crossing and the strand completely above or completely below are independent of where they're placed. These are Reitemeister's three moves. So the natural question is, who cares? Reitemeister came up with these three moves. Of course, by doing the moves, I've changed the pictures, but not the knot itself. Seems like you and I can come up with numerous other moves than just these three. What's so special about these three moves? Why should we care about these three Reitemeister moves? Well, Reitemeister comes with a remarkable theorem. 
he states that these three moves are the only three needed to go from one projection of a knot to any other projection of the same knot. In other words, given a picture, given a projection of one knot that you have, and any other projection of the same knot, these three moves are enough to go from this to this. Now, of course, the way in which I perform the three moves, the combinations of which I do right of maestro moves one, then three, then two, then another two, could be complicated. But he said, regardless of how complicated you make the order sequence of the three moves, you will need nothing more than these three. Let's take a look at this picture. The question is, is this knot, which we call the trefoil, the same as this complicated knot right below it? Are they the same? Well, I can find a collection of Reitermeister moves to go from one to the other one if they're the same knot. Consider this. I take my first trefoil, I do a twist, a Reitermeister move one twist, then I push it through using Reitermeister move two, then I take that crossing and go past that crossing, I take that strand and go past that crossing. Now I can do another twist, Reitermeister move one, and I can take that twist and move it past under that crossing, another Reitermeister move three. So you see, I've made the first one into my last one with the sequence of Reitermeister moves. Because of Reitermeister's theorem, we convert a global problem, something that shows that these two knots don't seem related at all. It's a global phenomena that one does not look like the other one into a local problem. We just need to worry about small moves one at a time. This is the brilliance of Reitermeister's theorem. Well, the Reitermeister moves exist between two projections only if the knots are the same. We know by his theorem that if two knots are the same, then we can use a collection of Reitermeister moves to go from one to the other one. But what if the knots are different? Try using Reitermeister moves for the trefoil and try to make it look like the unknot. So here's my unknot. Can I use Reitermeister moves? A Reitermeister move twist one, a Reitermeister move three crossing, a twist, a crossing. Can I just repeat these Reitermeister moves over and over again to try to make it look like the trefoil? Well, if I fail after 100 attempts, how do I know that it's because I need to do 101 attempts? When do we stop? Maybe a thousand attempts will eventually make this into my trefoil. So we see that these Reitermeister moves do not help us to tell knots apart. They do help us to tell knots that are the same. If you're given two projections of the same knot, we can go from one to the other one. But if you're given two projections of possibly different knots, then no matter how much we try, we cannot make one into the other. So how do we know if the trefoil is or isn't the unknot? Doesn't seem like Reitermeister has helped us answer this problem at all. He's given us a way to go between knots we know are the same, but, knots, but not between knots which are different. Well, a major breakthrough using Reitermeister moves came in the idea of coloring. That's right, simple coloring that we learned way back in elementary school and preschool was developed and exploited in a beautiful way by a mathematician named Ralph Fox in the 1950s. And here is his definition. He said, a projection of a knot is three colorable if it's one of three things we can satisfy. First, we can color every strand, which is a piece of a knot that goes from one crossing to another one. 
if we can color every strand using one of three colors. That's the first condition. The second condition is we need to use all three colors somewhere in my knot projection. And third, each crossing has to have all three colors meet at that crossing, or only one color can meet at that crossing. That's his definition of three color ability. Now note that three color ability is based on projections of knot. It's not based on the knot itself. If somebody gives me a knot like this, there's no way I can color strands. There is nothing called a strand in three dimensions because it's just one piece of rope. But the moment I place it on the table and get a projection, now you have those over and under crossings that cut it up. So thus, three color ability is based on projection, not the three-dimensional knot itself. Now let's look at some examples and consider how three color ability works. Consider this picture of the unknot this particular projection of the picture of the unknot. Notice here that this projection is not three-colorable because I cannot use three colors to color the strands. But what about this picture over here of the trefoil? Notice here, this is three-colorable. I can color one of the three different strands. Remember where we got the word trefoil? I can color one of the three different strands, one of three colors. I can color this one red, this one blue, and this one green. And notice I've used all three colors. Each strand is one of the three colors. And at every intersection, three colors meet. So the trefoil, this particular projection, is three colorable, whereas this particular projection of the unknot is not three colorable. Let's consider another projection of the unknot, the one that we showed earlier, which was very close to that of the trefoil. What if we have this projection of the unknot? It's still the unknot. Note, we can untangle this. Now let's start coloring. If I start coloring the strands red, green, and blue, notice at this crossing, all three colors meet. But at this crossing, and here, only two meet. So I need to try to fix this. And as I try to fix it, it turns out no matter how I color these different strands, I cannot succeed. So this projection of the unknot is not three colorable. Well, we prove one of the most remarkable results based on combining Reitermeister moves and three-color ability. Here's the way we do it. If your knot projection is three-colorable, we apply a Reitermeister move to say that it also keeps it three-colorable. In other words, we want to understand how colorability and Reitermeister moves fit together. Let's look at an example. Consider the right of my move one. So here we have a strand, and notice that it's colored red. It's zoomed in to a picture of a more complicated knot. Now, if I take this and apply right of my move one, if I twist it, I get a crossing. And I'm going to color this entire strand red again. If the original projection was three colorable, notice that this new projection is also three colorable. Why? Because here at this crossing, Either one color has to meet or all three meets. And notice, one color meets. So it's also three colorable. That means by doing Reitermeister move one, I've made it so that if it originally was three colorable, doing a Reitermeister move still keeps it three colorable. Let's consider Reitermeister move two and three and see what this has to do with coloring. Consider this as Reitermeister move two. Here we see that if I have two vertical strands both red, 
If I push one into the other one, either behind or above, I can color all of them red. And by doing so, all the crossings satisfy my three colorability condition. Now you might be asking, aren't you supposed to use all three colors? But notice, this is a snapshot of my knot. The rest of my knot could be using all three colors. At this particular spot, I know that if the original two vertical strands are three colorable, I can make this Rhytomeister Move 2 also three colorable. But what happens if one of your strands is red, but another one is blue, like this picture shows? Now what you do is as you push the blue strand on top, you can color this extra new strand that appears to be green. Now notice, all my crossings are satisfying the condition of three colorability. And similarly, we see this is true for Rhytomeister Move 3. Here, I'm just going to give you one particular example. There are several other examples we need to check in terms of different colorings of strands. But let's look at this particular one. Here I have two strands colored blue in the bottom and two red on top and a green strand going through it. Now if I use Rhytomeister Move 3 and push that green strand down, notice what happens. I can now recolor that crossing red coming from the very top two strands and the blues are in the bottom, I keep, and the green also stays the same. If it was three colorable on the left side, it stays three colorable on the right. But what does this have to do with our quest to tell knots apart? Well, recall Reitemeister's remarkable theorem. He says that every projection of a knot can be made by just these three Reitemeister moves. Now let's combine these ideas of colorability that Fox gives us and this Reitemeister move given by Reitemeister himself. And here's what we get. According to Reitemeister, if one projection of the knot is three colorable, then every time we do a Reitemeister move, it stays three colorable. So if that projection's three colorable, I'm doing Reitemeister moves one after the other one, it's staying three colorable, it's still three colorable. But Reitermeister says I could start at this projection and go to every possible projection there is, which means if this is three colorable, all projections of my knot are three colorable. And if this is not three colorable, then I can't all of a sudden introduce a new crossing that it is three colorable, a new projection. So we see if this was not three colorable, then every projection cannot be three colorable also. In other words, what we have found is that three colorability is not a property of the projection of the knot, but a property of the knot itself. That's unbelievable because we didn't even know what three colorability meant for a knot. Remember, we couldn't color a knot itself. Three colorability can only be defined on projections. But by this amazing result, three colorability turns out to be somehow a property that a knot itself has and it has nothing to do with its projections. Remember the example we talked about earlier? Let's look at it again. Here we see this example with this three colorable trefoil knot at the top. Now notice at each one of these steps, as I twist and as I push and as I do right up my moves one, two, and three, each one of my steps remains three colorable, which means that knots actually exist. Why? Let's think about our very first idea. Remember how the unknot, no matter how we colored it, no matter how we thought about the projections of the unknot, became not three colorable? 
Well, if that projection of the unknot was not three colorable, then the unknot itself does not have the property of three colorability. But the trefoil, as we just see by this picture, is three colorable, which means every projection of the trefoil is three colorable. And thus, the trefoil has the property three colorability. Since the unknot doesn't have this property, and the trefoil does have this property, they're different creatures altogether. So what have we done? We've proved a truly beautiful result based on shapes. It's based on Reitemeister moves, which all are local phenomena that control a global structure. It is based on colorings, simple ideas that we had when we were kids, applied in a powerful way. Now this is the type of creativity and originality that pushes the frontiers of math. Simple ideas such as color just cannot be discarded because it feels trivial. It has a powerful consequence of now telling knots apart. Thus far, we are able to tell the simple unknot, the most simple of knots. And we have proven that this object and the simple shoestring knot or the trefoil are fundamentally different creatures. That no matter what I do in terms of topology of stretching and pulling, I can never make it into the unknot. I wasn't able to do this other than pure intuition. But now, using the power of mathematics, we can actually understand shapes a little bit more. Well, thank you so much, and I hope you join me next time.